0: So here with me today on this extrasode uh, number three, we have uh, Dr. Catherine Reddy, who is an associate professor in the English department of the University of uh, Winnipeg. Thank you so much and uh, welcome. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we are talking about the time machine and the time traveler as a mad scientist. So can you tell us a little bit of the role of the so-called mad scientist in literature?
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, debate about, you know, when exactly the first mad scientist appears in literature. So many would argue that it's, it's Victor Frankenstein in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was published during the Romantic period in 1818. Um, but, you know, there's sort of, precursors that have been cited, you know, long before. Uh, as far as, you know, the role of the mad scientist, I mean, I think Victor is a great example of the kind of ambiguity of this figure. Uh, I think, you know, there's a way in which he, you can make a, a, a strong case that he is he's a hero and um, some would suggest he's a variation on what's sometimes called the romantic overreacher. So, you know, the romantics were all about you know, the, the sort of boundless power of the imagination and, you know, set your sights high. It doesn't matter if you fail. Um, if, um, you know, if you don't, you're, you're essentially dooming yourself to mediocrity and that romantic overreacher character has been seen as a reaction to neoclassicism and that sort of tragic figure um, who is meant to be sympathized with, um, you know, who, you know, he, he did set his sights too high but it was for you know, the purposes of benefiting humanity. And, um, and yeah, we're, we're sort of meant to, to identify with him. Uh, but on the other side, I think you could argue that he is the kind of anti-hero and, um, and maybe even a villain. And, and some have made the case that he, and not the monster, is really the one who's responsible for all the, the, the people who die in the course of the novel. Mm-hmm. um or at the very least victor is you know not very sympathetic in his inability to take any share of the responsibility so that uh, you know is sort of already we have this division in how people think about victor and i think some have thought that the mad scientist uh, is ambiguous because of two different influences that are sort of going into him so the the sort of figure of Prometheus, that, that's in the, su- the subtitle of, uh, of Frankenstein. And he was this kind of, you know, overreacher character, but he was doing it for the purposes of benefiting mankind. So he steals fire from heaven and then he's punished by the, the gods for, for that. Uh, but the other influence going into the mad scientist uh, that's often cited is Adam. And that's also clearly in Frankenstein and, you know if you read the mad scientist that way it's forbidden knowledge that he's gone after mm-hmm. and as a result he's basically brought all the evils into this world uh, so you know just uh in those two sources of inspiration there's a kind of a tension there in terms of how we're supposed to read the the mad scientist the mad scientist is uh, usually a man and um mm-hmm. uh, and then you know that also maybe part of the ambiguity because there's sort of, you know, there's heroic qualities in, you know, certain kinds of masculinity, but then he's also egotistical, refuses to listen, uh, is detached from other people, wants power over other people.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. Has there ever been a, a like a woman who
1: is a, a mad scientist? In the literature, um, they're very, it, it, certainly in the 19th century, I think there's like one example in the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, in particular, when you get into film and television, there are way more, more women. Um, and it's interesting, in the literature, the mad scientist sort of gradually becomes more in, unsympathetic. Mm. Um, but then when you get into popular culture in, in the mid-20th century, you start to get the example of the nutty professor, you know, so that... Uh, And, you know, the mad scientist, interestingly, yeah, could be a figure in comedy. Uh, And uh, and then, you know, you also get, you know, sort of more sympathetic examples. So uh, Walter Bishop in Fringe would be kind of an example where he's a sort of tamed mad mad scientist, where he's basically well-meaning and kind of, you know, sort of harmless, although he does end up doing a lot of, you know, harm. Uh, but you at least like him, you know, as a character. Um, yeah. And then, you know, um, in uh, cartoons, you know, so Princess Bubblegum in Adventure Time is, is a, you know, an example of a mad scientist, but, you know, she's kind of, you know, very, very likable um, and relatable as a character.
0: Cool. So do you have a favorite mad scientist
1: in literature? Well, see, that's the thing, you know, the mad scientist is, um, is, you know, can be not very likable. So it's sort of hard from that point of view. I mean, they're doing interesting things, but do you, you know, actually like them? I guess that's another question. Uh, I think uh, probably the ones who start off uh, in the early 19th century, because, you know, they are, they still have some more of those hero qualities. They are, you know, more likable. So Victor is, you know, say, is way more likable than than someone like Herbert West in Lovecraft's Reanimator, who's actually, you know, murdering people in his experiments. So, you know, Victor, it still, he, there may be narcissistic motives, but he's not trying to, you know, actually harm anyone. I really like Dr. Jekyll because I think he, you know, he is relatable, you know, that idea of trying to get away with things that, uh, you know, this very sort of uh rigid you know sort of moral uh victorian society is not sort of allowing him to um and you know there's the possibility he might be closeted you know gay that that uh is sort of you know sort of held out as a possibility although not confirmed uh, and then he does feel really really badly when uh Hyde actually really uh you know starts hurting people i mean you know he's already doing it Uh, fairly early on he tramples you know the the child (laughs) you know but it's the when Hyde actually commits murder that you know that's when Dr. Jekyll just wants to kind of put a a stop to it Mm -hmm. but by that point it's too late it's it's um, Hyde is out of control and and so he is I think in some ways more of a more of a victim than you know again Herbert West or um, Dr. Moreau Mm -hmm. in uh, you know in Wells uh, Island of Dr. Moral. Yeah
0: yeah um oh cool yeah Wells he's got a <laughs> lot of um scientists uh, messing around with things <laughs> in his yeah. yeah um so uh looking now at the time machine uh we've just listened to chapters five and six and we're being very careful to avoid spoilers uh but we do know that the time traveler has just escaped the underground tunnels of the Morlocks So does the representation of the time traveler up until this point in the novella fit the mad scientist model?
1: Yeah, I think that he does and he doesn't. I think there's also that, you know, scientist as heroic adventurer that's there in the mix. And you've got other contemporaries, you've got Jules Verne's, and you've got Arthur Conan Doyle, who, who are creating examples of literary scientists who fit in that mold. Um, so, you know, journey um, to the center of the earth and, uh, and then the lost world would be sort of two examples where you've got those heroic adventurer scientists um, there. But he, um, the time traveler is, you know, very close to Victor and to Dr. Jekyll in a lot of ways. I mean, he is, he's socially isolated um he 's a quote unquote confirmed bachelor, like you know dr Jekyll mm-hmm. uh, you know the only sort of social connections he seems to have it 's a group of of men who uh whom he invites over essentially to to talk about the work that he 's doing and to show them experiments that he he 's conducting so it 's not even they 're not even really close friends they are more more like acquaintances mm-hmm. um and there are other things about him. Uh, so the, um, the sort of physical description, you know, he, he's described as having a pale face and a queer, broad head. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's interesting because the sort of discourse of uh, Victorian science, uh, evolution and degeneration it has sometimes been connected with the, with the mad scientist. Um, so he has this kind of overdeveloped brain that you know makes him this kind of oddball in 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 certain ways. Um, you get the gothic in the description of that journey to uh, his laboratory, so you know the long drafty corridors and um, and the the mad scientist has been um, you know connected to the gothic anti-hero slash villain Um, and you know the laboratory of the mad scientist has often been compared to the the gothic castle so I think there's that so he he describes himself uh, explicitly as not a literary man and that's really interesting because the mad scientist has often been connected with the separation between the humanities and the the sciences and you've Mm -hmm. got the uh, academic disciplines that are established in the the kind of 19th century and universities that are built where they've got a faculty of science and a faculty of humanities. Um, and you've got C.P. Snow in the 20th century, he talks about the two solitudes of the humanities and the sciences. Um, and so the mad scientist has been seen as a kind of reflection of that, although maybe also an engagement, you know, with that. Yeah. Um, and um, and I guess there's another point that you could make. I mean, he he does have this this kind of uh, egotism and confidence in, in his own intellect, uh, the sense of superiority, and also the sense of, of science as uh, as something that's going to fix all of the world's problems. Mm. So you know he 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 thinks that uh, there has been this period in time in in world in the world's history when everything has been fixed, and uh, although ironically that's kind of Led to uh, you know the Eloy and the Morlocks um uh, you know sort of uh, you know no longer retaining full humanity because uh, you need something to strive um towards in order to to kind of do that mm-hmm. um, so so that I think is interesting as well, but you know he imagines that at some point before this moment that he's arrived in that uh, there was a kind of utopia on Earth. And actually, you know, when he initially, you know, is first coming out of the, the time machine and encounters the e- Eloy, uh, he, he sort of thinks of it as a utopia. Uh,
0: because we are talking about uh, this kind of maybe utopia that he stumbles upon in the future, on um, the year, year 802701 or something like that. Um, his relationship with the Eloi are very interesting. This is the um, group of people that he comes upon. Uh, they cover him with flowers. They welcome him to eat with them. and He's very determined to learn their language. And um, what do you find interesting about what we might call a scene of um, like this as a first encounter?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that phrase first encounter is really apt and you know, what came to my mind immediately were the 18th century travel narratives uh, describing, you know, European explorers going to the South Pacific. Uh, so, you know, French explorers like the Comte de Bougainville, um, Joseph Banks, James Cook, you know, British mm-hmm. explorers. And, uh, and, you know, they describe uh, Tahiti in particular, Um, as a sort of an island of Cytherea or of Aphrodite and you get all this kind of pastoral language that is um, is sort of there in these descriptions Um, and you know that uh, idea of utopia again that uh, is there. Uh, I think what's sort of interestingly different is that the Eloi are not really sexualized in the same way that the Tahitians are in those travel narratives. And it's more a kind of fatherly or paternalistic uh, relationship that um, the time traveler develops with them and particularly with Weena. So that is, uh, I think, really kind of interesting. And to to him, they are almost like children. Um, And so, maybe that idea of romantic childhood and innocence, as well as, uh, you know, that, that kind of discourse of the quote-unquote noble savage that could be, you know, there mm. in the that kind of description of first encounter uh, as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very, um, you know, it's a much more positive kind of reaction that he has to the Eloi. Um, and he doesn't, um, at least uh, initially, seem to have any impulse to dominate and control them. Like he, he is trying to understand them. Although um, there's a question, I guess, of whether that would have remained if he, he, um, not gone. You know, if he, if he stayed, stayed mm-hmm. in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the at that moment. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting to think about, and also the. Victorian idealization of, of childhood and having that be something that he is seeing in the people he comes upon um, so that's the eloy but can we talk a little bit about fear and disgust and the time travelers so the Morlocks inspire both of these responses in him and they're not really the kinds of responses that we tend to associate with science so can you Talk a little bit about that
1: response. The time traveler's reaction to the Morlocks is definitely not very scientific. I mean, it's a sort of visceral, you know, sort of disgust and hatred that, you know, is provoked. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting, you know, if he, um, given that he's sort of theorizing about how the Morlocks and the Eloi might have, you know, sort of come to be, mm-hmm. uh, if they... Are the have-nots from the Victorian, you know, the descendants of, of the have-nots from the Victorian period, then his reaction is all the more perplexing uh, in many ways. And also, given Wells's own background, you know, he, um, you know, he he didn't come from in a, an elite background. You know, his, mm. his mother was a, a sort of domestic servant. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his father had, you know, lots of, of trouble earning money for the family too. So yeah, so that, and he essentially wouldn't have had schooling if, it, if you didn't have, um, you know, some sort of opportunities that were starting to open up for uh, working class and impoverished students um, that enabled him to, you know, study with Huxley and actually uh get a a good education.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting that his his response to these these under uh earth dwellers um yeah. is so uh I guess not it's it's not Wells's response but is
1: his Yeah, and that, and that's always an interesting question is to think about, you know, where the author is in relation to, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of narrator um yeah, the, the, the narrative structure mm-hmm. uh, really, I think, sort of conveys that idea that there's a, a sort of distance. Um, so you've got actually that unidentified first person narrator who mm-hmm. is the one who tells us about this, this sort of group of men who all meet at the Time Travelers and um, who's sort of um, the one that, you know, sort of gives us a physical description of the Time Traveler and the little details that we get.
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's
1: interesting. So,
0: um, is, so do you think the Time Traveler is giving a, a response that maybe is, um, just generally would be a, a general response anyone would have coming across Uh, these Morlocks
1: or that's a really interesting point and it's so hard to tell because he's the only one Mm -hmm. who encounters them and so we get it entirely from his perspective and we have no you know we have no real uh, you know sort of measure uh, and reference point for for the perspective that he's offering us, um, you know, it could very well be a reaction to the Morlocks, but we'll, we'll never know that because he, he traveled by himself. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point, too, is that we have only his, his uh, perspective on it. And, you know, there's that uncertainty, um, you know, that we have, you know, from the beginning, it is all of this "Quote unquote true within the the sort of narration um, that we're being offered, or is there a, a trick, a sleight of hand? You know, that sort of the doubt that's kind of put in the reader's mind through the frame at the very beginning. You know, is any of of what the the time traveler tells us um, true, or did it actually happen at least within the you know the sort of context of the fiction?
0: Yeah, yeah." Uh, that that framing is so interesting. Uh, it, it kind of, um, mm-hmm. it helps Wells so much when we talk about it. It's like, well, we don't know for sure because there's that extra narrator who's telling it from the, you know, it's a second person where it's like twice
1: removed the story. And that's another way in which this novel is, um, I think, channeling the Gothic you know, in the Gothic, you often have um, what's referred to as the fantastic in the the treatment of the supernatural elements, where it's not entirely clear, you know, one way or another, whether the event the events that are you know described uh, actually happened. Um, so, you know, you've got the found manuscript trope. You've got, you know, often these framing devices that underscore the sense of we don't really know what was going on here. Yeah, great. I love that channeling the gothic especially
0: for a time traveling into the future story. <laughs> so taking things from the past in a general sense. What do you make of of the time traveler's approach to exploring this future world? He is an inventor, he's an adventurer, but how scientific is he? Like how is he using scientific processes when he's exploring?
1: Yeah. Again, I don't think he is very scientific. I mean, he doesn't uh, undertake any surveys. You know, he doesn't collect any samples. Um, so yeah, there's no you know kind of uh, natural history that's being conducted. You know, while he while he's there, um, I think you know you could argue that he remains scientific uh, in the sense that if he's a theoretical. Mm -hmm. scientists, you know, sort of first and foremost. And he becomes an inventor because he wants to prove his theory that time is a fourth dimension. Um, And so if you think about him in that way, you know, theoretical scientists are a sort of different breed, you know, (laughs) unto themselves. And you know, maybe it it just didn't occur to him. Uh, But you do sort of think if he wanted to come back and convince anybody that he would have brought some physical evidence um back and you know he he sort of talks about bringing weena but you know that is you know that you know is something that's left up in the air um and um so yeah i think uh you could argue that this is sort of more of the fantastic uh, that you know sort of uh, at play uh, so you know of course if he had uh, brought some physical evidence and um then you know we the the sort of audience uh but at the very least there's not a lot of of physical evidence that and he and he doesn't seem primarily interested in in that he he seems to forget all about it, you know that mm-hmm. maybe um if um if he is going to believe be believed then he should be backing up his story or something
0: yeah yeah it's not very scientific that his science went as far as building the science or the time machine it seems and then and then he just became a an explorer something like that
1: yeah yeah I, i think that's right so he had had this theory you know he invented this incredible machine um the science of which is is you know, kind of left in obscurity. So we don't quite know how it is he developed this machine. There's a little bit about quartz, which, you know, is kind of thrown in there. Uh, And, you know, then when he actually goes on this trip, he seems to forget about science altogether. So. So I have a final question for you. Do
0: you think that scientists will continue to play an important role um, as characters in literary works in the future? And would it be fair to say literary interest in science and scientists is timeless?
1: That's a really excellent question, um, and a hard one. Um, There are, you know, sort of critics who have suggested that, uh, you know, going back to the very beginning of prose fiction, you have imaginative writers who have taken an interest in science so if you think about uh, you know a writer like Lucian uh, he writes a um, a narrative about a voyage to the moon uh, which you know you, you could argue I mean uh, because it's it's uh, somewhat satirical that you know it's a little bit different uh, but uh, medieval romances you know some have suggested that that magic uh, and um, the kind of aesthetic of wonder that you have in medieval romances might be connected to uh, early developments in science, and mm-hmm. uh, and you know, essentially uh, the kind of lay person's response to science in in you know being dazzled by it because uh, um, they don't understand you know what's going on. Um, I think you know by the time we get to uh, Wells, um, the relationship between literature and science is very different um, because of that uh, separation between the humanities and the, and the sciences mm-hmm. um, and um, and the mad scientist narrative that can be seen as uh, itself in a critical way uh, in relation to science, although um, maybe there is some wonder there still and some sort of tribute to the feats of science in this literature um, but you know I, I i guess as far as will this interest continue um, you know the the fact that we just have become more technologized you know science has become you know ever more present in our our daily lives um, at the same time as you know there are a lot there's a lot of it we don't actually understand <laughs> um, I don't see the interest in science going away in literature anytime soon, and I think um, in fact, it, it is kind of performing this very valuable role in um, thinking through some of the ethical dilemmas that you know are, are being raised uh, you know, sort of uh, all the time, by different scientific, technological developments.
0: hmm Yeah, seems to be a, a character that will stick around in future works. Although the time traveler, you're convincing me, he's not very <laughs> not very scientific, although he seems to have that kind of background.
1: No, I, and, it, you know, he is, I think, a, that blend of, of explorer slash, you know, sort of mad scientist. Um, and it's hard to know what Wells was up to, you know, and how deliberately he was trying to create this character as a blend between the two. Um, I mean, I think Wells also, he was someone who felt very free to kind of do whatever he wanted and to to kind of experiment in his own way Mm -hmm. uh, as a writer. Uh, And I don't think he saw himself as having literary pretensions necessarily, although, you know, he is, you know, now uh, often thought of that way as being, you know, part of a a sort of high art tradition, but he was, you know, a popular writer in his own day, and um, and that kind of gives you a certain license as a writer. You know, you're you're trying to, um, you know, sort of appeal to your readers, and so you know you can mix in different element elements and not really necessarily be too worried about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you about?
1: I mean, uh, you know, we could talk a little bit more about evolution. That was the only thing that I was thinking about. Oh yeah. So I could say a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think is um, distinctive in, you know, Wells's treatment of the mad scientist is that engagement with evolutionary theory.
0: Mm.
1: And, um, you know, also the the sort of neo-Darwinian idea of degeneration. So the idea that uh, evolution can go in different directions um, and that, uh, you know, in the Victorian period uh, got caught up in sort of, pseudo uh, science of race and actually class as well. Um, so that idea that, um, you know, the, the sort of working poor uh, were potentially um, on this track to degenerate uh, as, as well as, uh, you know, having racialized forms of degeneration um and that is one of the interesting things about the morlocks is uh they're sort of um you know sort of evoke white gorillas you know that i that kind of image um and um i think uh, at the same time they're not as big as um as the time traveler is so they've kind of become um you know sort of diminutive like the um the Eloy too um, and uh, made me think a lot about you know descriptions particularly of uh, the working poor and the Irish um, because there was a lot of anti irish racism in the um in the victorian period um and in dr. Jekyll and mr Hyde uh, Hyde uh, is pale and quote-unquote dwarfish. I mean, he's sort of undersized as well. So in um, the descriptions of the Morlocks, I was very much reminded by the the descriptions of uh, Mr. Hyde in Dr. Zekyll and Mr. Hyde.
0: Oh, great comparison. That was great. You've given me and I think everyone a lot to to consider when we, um, as we move forward, but up until this point too, and think about and and kind of consider some different uh, perspectives and ways to think about uh, the time machine and the time traveler. Yeah, as, as mad scientist or, or, yeah, or not, or a blend, <laughs> whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's also to me just a great adventure story. I mean, it really does, you know, sort of hold up that way. I mm-hmm. mean, it is, uh, it is fairly exciting yeah. you know, to read. Um, I think it was um, uh, um, uh,
0: Dr. Christopher Keep I spoke to earlier, and he was saying um, they used to call them scientific romances. I think it is the term. So it has both yes. that it's got a romantic adventurer um, kind mm-hmm. of feeling to it, ex- exploring into a far-reaching place, and it's kind of got this romance involved, but scientific. <laughs>
1: yeah in the whole history of the novel you know that kind of tension between realism and romance is something that that continues and it's um you know what where where do, where does a particular um uh, you know sort of example fall in the continuum of realism and romance and the gothic i think that's also in in the sort of on the romance side of the spectrum as well as um these kind of Adventure stories that you get, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson. I mean, as well as writing Doctor Jekyll, and Mr Hyde. I mean, he was writing, you know, Kidnapped, and um, you know, definitely, right. a lots of adventure stories. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. They go hand in hand. Uh, well, thank you so much for um, for speaking with us today and and talking about. Um, talking about mad scientists and giving us um, a lot to think about uh, for the rest of the novel. Thank you so much.
1: It's been really fun. Thank you again for having me.